1: this is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just ahead on the program, here come those U.S. inflation numbers. I'm John Tucker
2: in New York.
3: I'm Caroline Hettger in London, where we're looking at the next major climate summit, COP27, in Egypt.
2: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at COVID zero in China, locking down a factory of 200,000 workers making iPhones.
4: I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We're gauging the turnout and the last-minute scramble before the midterms.
5: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. On Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991, Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via
1: the Bloomberg Business app. John Tucker, let's start today's program with the inflation. Households are watching the Fed, certainly watching it, and we're tracking developments for you right here in the Bloomberg Radio Studio with Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. You have inflation in your title. It keeps getting longer. (laughs) Um, So I guess we're talking about CPI. Uh, That print's coming out. That's become sort of like the the mother of all economic indicators lately.
6: It was always the jobs report, and now it's the CPI again. Of course, uh, that depends on how old your mother is, because back in the Paul Volcker (laughs) days... Don't talk about my mother. (laughs) Back in the Paul Volcker days, the CPI was important as well. And then we had very, very low inflation for a very, very long time. And then... uh, All of a sudden, we've got big inflation again, so people care about this number.
1: Uh, we used to talk about a word transitory, and now we're talking about a word. I think it's sticky has replaced transitory.
6: Yeah, Are you right uh, about that. Jay Powell retired the word transitory. Uh, sticky uh, in price inflation has been around for a long time, and it's basically a concept that uh, prices change very slowly. Uh, the old uh, example that they would use in economic school is restaurants uh, would be reluctant to change their prices because they would have to print. All new menus, and that would be an expense. But uh, of course, nowadays uh, restaurants give you no. You your take a picture on, on, your yeah, phone, on your phone. Right? Yeah. So I don't know if that's a good example anymore. <laughs> but there are things that like that that take a while to adjust, and that's the idea of sticky price inflation. And some of those things have uh, have not moved as much as the Fed would like. That's the question for. Uh, next week's uh, CPI report is, do we see some movement in any of the areas that the Fed's been waiting for? What's the breakdown? Well, prices won't come down probably, but the uh, the whole point of the inflation numbers is the rate of change. The rate of increase is, is what the Fed look, looks at, and their target is a 2% annual rate of increase in these things. Um, you don't get prices going down except in uh, crisis situations. Uh, We saw some prices fall at the beginning of the pandemic, and then they went back up because there were shortages. What we're looking for here is a decline in the month-to-month increases. When you look at the year-over-year because of base effects and the fact that inflation was higher last year, uh, you would see declines. But what the Fed wants to see is that right now we're seeing inflation slowing down. And for that, they're looking at things that have had a big impact on it. Um, obviously, energy over the recent months has has come down. Gasoline prices have come down. That's helped the CPI. But now the basic premise is it's for, the, for the month of October it went up. So that should add. But things like medical care, as uh, the COVID crisis has fallen out of uh, the public consciousness, used car prices on the wholesale level have been falling significantly because suddenly there are cars available. And so that should change. Airfares, they think, may go down. Hotel room prices may go down. So there are areas that had not moved as much as the Fed thought they would, that uh, people are expecting to see some progress on. Not huge, but some progress.
1: Okay, so the thinking is, with the central bank, uh, short-term pain, i.e. higher interest rates, will lead to uh, longer-term
6: gains, right? That's. (laughs) I mean, how much pain do I have to endure? (laughs) Well, that depends uh, on a lot of things that are out of your control, um, like you know what you're going to pay at the gas pump, and uh, what uh, what you're going to have to pay for um, things that you buy in the store that may be suffering from supply chain problems. Supply chains are getting better, so we should see goods prices continue to drop. Uh, we're still seeing service prices rise. With the higher rates, uh, are, are are they having an impact that we can see? Well, it depends on the category. Certainly, they're having an impact on uh, real estate and housing. Uh, Mortgage rates have gone way up, and new home sales and existing home sales have gone way, way down. Uh, Mortgage Bankers Association Mortgage Activity Index is at a level that uh, it last reached in 1997, so we're seeing a a definite impact there. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with other inflation-sensitive things like car purchases uh, and um, whether or not people continue to use credit cards as much as if they have uh, adjustable rate credit cards. We're seeing some slowing in uh, the overall economy in terms of retail sales. People still have a lot of money, but they're not spending as much of it uh, as, as they were. So we're seeing some movement uh, on the margins was the way that uh, Powell put it this last week. Uh, so what's the expectation from the consumer price index that we're, we're going to be getting? Well, on a month-over-month basis, economists think we're going to go up by uh, 7 tenths of a percent in the month of October, which would uh, bring the year-over-year rate to 8% is a tick down from last month, but uh, that's uh, base effects. Now, the Fed's going to be looking at the core, uh, and that should increase by 5 tenths, which is lower than the prior month. And 6.6% is the year-over-year uh, estimate for the core rate, which would be the same as the prior month. Any little bit would be seen as progress. The real concern for the markets is if we get a surprise upward
1: Mike, always a pleasure. Bloomberg's Michael McKee. And just a hint on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the United Nations COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, Taiwan and its tricky business relationship with China. But first, world leaders, activists, diplomats, and throngs of journalists gathering for the United Nations COP27 climate summit in Egypt. And for more, let's head to London. Bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker.
3: John, COP27 takes place in Sharm el-Sheikh amid an energy crisis and global economic upheaval that's testing the commitment of many countries to cutting emissions. The world is still not on track to keep global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees Celsius. This, of course, is seen as a key threshold for averting catastrophic climate change. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg Green senior climate reporter Akshat Ratti and Bloomberg Green reporter Laura Milan in Madrid. Laura, I want to start with you. What is the mood like?
7: Well, I would say that based on the conversations that both Akshat and I have had with people attending over the last few days, Um, everyone's uh, expectations uh, are really high. Um, You can think that COP meetings happen every year and so many people go. There are over 45,000 registered participants um, for this one, according to the Egyptian presidency. And everyone wants to um, do the best they can. They know the eyes of Mm -hmm. the world will be on them for these two weeks, that climate issues will be uh, on top of the agenda on the news everywhere for these two weeks. And they just want to make sure that they do the best they can.
3: Yeah. And also because the consequences of climate change are becoming so apparent. Akshat, what is the latest research on trying to keep global warming in check?
8: It's a two step process, essentially. If we go back seven years, the world was on track for catastrophic climate change, and now it isn't quite that bad. But even what we have today, which is three degrees Celsius warming, not one and a half degrees Celsius warming, that is still in sight, and the world is not cutting emissions fast enough. So uh, we had two reports, one from the United Nations and one from the International Energy Agency, saying Uh, two things that seem opposite, but they are actually quite aligned, which is we're not making enough progress, but we are making some progress and that we might be able to peak emissions uh, and fossil fuel use within this decade. A lot Mm. more just needs to be done, though.
3: Okay. And this, of course, because energy security has has become so much more important and central because of Russia's war in, in Ukraine. Has that um, concern around energy security scuppered some progress on climate. Um, you know, given the energy crisis in Europe, it certainly
8: has in the short term. You know, countries are turning to whatever fuels they can get access to, if it means burning more coal. They are, uh, but scuppering long-term goals that hasn't happened. If you've seen what has happened in the U.S. with the U.S. passing a climate bill uh, called the Inflation Reduction Act or Europe, which is doubling down on deploying more renewables while legislating its Green Deal. Uh, Those are clear actions that if the world wants energy security and wants to act on climate change, it needs to double down on green energy. But in the short term, because building out green energy takes a, a while, people are turning to more fossil fuels and that's going to reverse some of the progress made so far.
3: Pakistan and that the awful monsoons that have killed hundreds of people, um, you know, and and submerged the country under water. I mean, this is perhaps one of the clearest uh, uh, examples of the sort of devastation from changing weather and climate. Do you think there's going to be a lot more focus then on this idea of loss and damage, on demands from countries that are being affected now by climate change? There's one grouping, the G77, but there are you know, demands for uh, richer countries to to pay more, to support more? Definitely. Uh, So
7: we think that uh, the so-called issue of loss and damage will be the central theme in this year's COP. One of the reasons is because this is a COP that's being held in Africa uh, for the first time in a few years. So obviously the uh, presidency of every COP um, holds certain power over which issues it wants to prioritise but also because obviously of the uh, devastating floods in Pakistan earlier this year, but also in other developing nations which are uh, bearing the costs of climate change, even though they contributed very little to it in comparison to developed nations. So we've just seen, for example, devastating floods in Nigeria as well. And we can expect uh, developing nations to uh, demand rich countries to pay or to come up with a system of funding that can help them recover when these extreme weather events happen.
3: Mm. Yeah, uh, and that's for the sort of developing countries. Akshat, I think we had a conversation when the UK hosted the last COP in Glasgow, of course. Just the latest report, though, um, from the Independent Climate Change Committee here in the UK for 2022 has kind of underlined the issues for Britain itself on how committed we are. And, And there is you know, still some doubt about how committed Britain is in some ways to decarbonisation. What what do you think of that? And the pressure that the UK is under as a G7 country?
8: Yeah, that's certainly one topic that's come up, especially through the leadership contests that have happened uh, in the Conservative Party. Um, mm-hmm. And we have heard from uh, certain wings of the Conservative Party a pushback against climate policies, But where things stand, the UK still leads among the G7 countries on how much emissions it has cut since 1990, more than 40%. Um, And the UK has met its climate goals until 2022. So this year it will be the third uh, carbon budget, as they are called here in the UK, and the UK will have met it. But you are right that it is going off track especially this year, renewables energy uh, investments have gone down. Uh, The UK is in dire straits with its financial uh, situation, having to uh, give a lot of money to energy companies to try and keep prices of energy low for consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so questions are being asked. But as you you can see, commitment from the UK government, if it wavers, there is a lot of backlash. And that causes Uh, governments to change their mind. So Rishi Sunak wasn't going to come to COP, now he
3: is. Okay. Um, Good luck to both of you. I hope you'll join us next week on Bloomberg Radio to tell us more. Uh, That is our Bloomberg Green senior climate reporter Akshat Ratti and from Madrid, Bloomberg Green reporter Laura Milan. Thank you so much for your time taking us through what to expect from COP27 and climate summit in Egypt. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for full coverage of COP27 and so much more on Bloomberg Daybreak. You are beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. John.
1: All right, Caroline, thanks a lot. And just a hint on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Taiwan's tech companies in China. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg.
5: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend.
1: tucker in new york with your global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week taiwan businesses are facing more challenges in china for more let's go to hong kong and bloomberg daybreak
2: asia host brian curtis John, not much warning on this, but China locked down the world's largest iPhone factory this past week. It's a Hai complex in Zhengzhou, China, and it's probably the last thing that Apple needed. Never mind Honhai or Foxconn. It brings in so many issues. China's COVID-0 policies, Apple's efforts to diversify production, other big companies and their plans as well, and also the changing nature of supply chains— The ever complex relationship that Taiwan companies have operating in mainland China, as well as Taiwan China relations and U.S. China relations. It's a big, big story. Joining us now to discuss this is Samson Ellis, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief. He's embedded with Green at the moment, and he's right here in our Hong Kong studios with us. Sam, thanks very much for coming in. So we've, we've got the local authorities there sterilizing the Foxconn campus, and there have been mass walkouts, so it's a, it's a complicated moving story as we speak, but it's a, it's a kind of contained bubble, right?
9: It is. you know, And as you've laid out very well, you know, it's been a bit of a week to forget for, for Hong Hai or Foxconn. And, and all of this really stems from China's strict adherence to this COVID zero policy where, you know, as soon as you get a few cases of COVID, uh, the local th- authorities come in and lock down a whole area. And when that area happens to be where Hong Hai's largest iPhone plant is in Zhengzhou, then that obviously causes problems and creates ripples uh, that extend to Cupertino,
2: right? Uh, And people want to escape the restrictions. So some of them just escape and actually walk out of there.
9: Yeah, and the Chinese social media has been uh, awash with videos of hundreds, if not thousands of people, young people uh, walking down roads and highways, pushing large suitcases, walking, you know, sometimes tens of miles home to escape the impending lockdown or at least uh, escaping, you know, the, the increasingly worst conditions there. You know, they're worried about getting COVID themselves. In the days preceding the lockdown, you know, it, was, it became increasingly difficult to get food and basic supplies in, into the uh, manufacturing complex. And so some people were having to subsist on, on just bread for, mm. for several days. So that's why people are just, you know, fleeing these plants right now. What do we know
2: about the impact on production?
9: Foxconn says they are going to keep manufacturing. It's a question of like how much it does lower production. By and you know it couldn't really couldn't come at a worse time. You know this is the ramp up ahead of the holiday season, which is obviously peak sales season for things like your iPhones, and so. Foxconn are really trying hard to contain this. They're, they're offering to increase uh, people's salaries by uh, up to 36% to persuade them to stay on the
2: production lines and stop them from, uh, you know, walking out. All right, let's take a, a sort of lofty look at things. And, and let me ask you that if you, if you take COVID zero policies and the changes that we saw coming out of the Party Congress, the further emphasis on national security and perhaps a somewhat of a small lessening on pure economic um, interests. Is 2022 the year that China semi-loses the West?
9: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think, you know, the economies are so bound to each other, so interconnected. People are not going to stop buying iPhones or the various other gadgets that are largely manufactured in China. But, you know, you are certainly going to see companies reducing their reliance on China. There's definitely been this uh, realization that maybe, you know, the the risk of overconcentration in China. And so while you might not see companies directly pull out of China, I think what you definitely are going to see, and the numbers do back this up, certainly from Taiwanese investment, you know, and and the Taiwanese brands and and manufacturers are often the operators of the plants in China, for example is that much less new capex is going into China.
2: I think a lot of people would be interested in how ordinary people in Taiwan, you live in Taiwan, how ordinary people feel about these tensions with China.
9: So Taiwan has been facing the threat of invasion by China for the last 70 plus years. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very used to living with this threat. I think also largely the the feeling is that you know, an invasion is not certainly not imminent. And China does also still hold out hope of being
2: able to uh, conduct this peacefully. Sam, thanks very much for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. Samson Ellis, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief, is with us here in our Hong Kong studios. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John?
1: Brian, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a lot hanging on this coming week's U.S. midterm elections. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Well, candidates are scrambling to cover as much ground as possible ahead of Tuesday's midterms. Some key races are close. Some are just hard to predict. And for a look at what to expect, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy.
4: All right. Thank you, John. Big stakes for Democrats and Republicans in these midterms. Joining me now to talk about it all, White House reporter Jordan Fabian. Jordan, thanks for taking the time with us.
10: Thanks for having me on, Amy.
4: What? Has the White House and perhaps maybe the president concerned at this point?
10: Well, they're certainly concerned about the possibility that Democrats could lose control of one or both chambers of Congress. That would essentially spell the end for their policy agenda. And so President Biden is uh, going around the country to different states to try and campaign and save some of these jobs, and also uh, gubernatorial candidates uh, trying to save some state houses as well. But if you look at where he's going, he's going to New York, New Mexico, California. Uh, These are states that are traditionally blue states. So that shows you the kind of trouble the Democrats are in, that he's having to go to these uh, th- places that were thought to be safe, uh, in order to try and salvage uh, key lawmakers.
4: And it's not just that they'll see their policy fall by the wayside. Um, they're also they've got to be concerned that they're going to see sort of a little tit for tat when it comes to investigations and subpoenas, that sort of thing.
10: Certainly, uh, they're they're very well aware of the fact that if Republicans gain control of Congress, not only will there be investigations, but there could be also impeachment proceedings brought against. Joe Biden, perhaps, uh, but also key cabinet secretaries like Attorney General General Merrick Garland or the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. So they're preparing for all those possibilities. But I'm told by senior White House officials and just the course of talking to folks this week that they think that there's a strong possibility these kind of investigations could backfire on Republicans and that it'll be viewed as overreach, especially if they go after Hunter Biden and some sensitive subjects like that. So uh, that'll, that'll be something to watch next year if Republicans do indeed take control.
4: In Jordan, the White House is saying now it supports the Fed's rate hikes. Uh, it's still painful for people to see their mortgage rates go up, things of that nature. While at the same time, the White House says it is trying to fight back against inflation. Let's hear more now. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean Pierre:
3: The Fed is uh, is independent. Uh, it's an independent agency, and we believe uh, the president believes that it has uh, the sh- it has the best monetary policies to address uh, inflation. Now,
4: Jean-Pierre did take it a step further. Stable
3: and steady growth with lower inflation. This is the kind of economy that delivers for working families, and that's how we see uh, the work of the of the Fed.
4: So, Jordan is being on the side of rising rates going to wind up being a liability for the president, even though he's fighting inflation. How does he balance that?
10: It's a really it's a really tough balance to strike. And it, look, if there is a recession at the end of this. Uh, yeah, there'll be a political fallout for for the president and and the Democrats. And you're seeing more and more Democratic lawmakers actually raise concern about the size and scope of these interest rate hikes. At first, it was Elizabeth Warren, but you're seeing other Democratic senators like John Hickenlooper from Colorado come out and say, "Hold on a second, uh, there could be some real fallout for the economy." But that being said, uh, the White House has been very careful to say that the Fed is independent. We're not going to Ask them to slow the pace of rate hikes, or really do anything for that matter uh, that we want them to do. We're going to let them do what they think is best to try and whip inflation. And right now, the Fed has signaled that they're going to continue with this uh, course of of rate hikes, uh, possibly you know next month and in the future.
4: And that's really sucked all the air out of the room. I mean, it wasn't really that long ago when the big concern was uh, abortion access, and and it seemed to really give Democrats something of a boost. And it just
10: evaporated. That's right. And you, you know you look at it and you, you think maybe if the, the, this is a court ruling came out closer to the election, uh, that, that boom for Democrats uh, would have been better time for them. But yeah, the, I guess enthusiasm or interest in that issue uh, seem to wane as concerns about the economy uh, really have continued and, and grown in voters' minds. If you look at polls from around the summer there're actually a couple of polls that that said you know abortion access and uh you know threats to democracy were right up there with the economy which mm-hmm. you typically don't see that's usually the number 1 issue for voters but now those have ebbed and and the economy is is front of mind
4: well, and now the president is sort of pivoting on that as well warning of economic chaos if republicans do sweep Uh, the midterms. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy told us on Balance of Power this past week that a weird economy is actually making things harder for Democrats.
6: It's a weird economy. We we have our lowest unemployment rate ever, below the national average. Our revenues at the state level continue to be solid. Uh, We've been upgraded by credit rating agencies. We've paid debt down. And yet at the same time, there's enormous pain at that kitchen table, largely due to affordability.
4: So how do they balance that?
10: you know, they haven't really figured it out yet. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, part of the problem is that you know, if you look at Biden's record over the first couple of years, he's actually gotten a lot done. He's gotten the infrastructure bill. He's got that Inflation Reduction Act, which is really, you know, a climate and, and prescription drug health bill. Uh, he's gotten this is an agenda. If you look at it would be great for any president. But what they've struggled with is getting people to understand or explaining to people how that's going to help them afford groceries and clothes and gas and and they've tried to strike this balance of you know tra- touting their accomplishments but also acknowledging the economic pain that people are feeling and they really haven't figured out a message that's stuck and, and that's why you're seeing a lot of these candidates struggle because frankly voters are blaming this on Joe Biden and his approval ratings have really sunk in the past few weeks
4: because he's the guy in the White House exactly. We are talking with Bloomberg White House reporter Jordan Fabian about the upcoming midterms and what folks might be able to expect. Now, you had mentioned, Jordan, about how democracy was an issue for a hot minute. The president's still trying to keep it in the spotlight, making the January 6th insurrection an issue. He talked about it at this past week at Union Station, drawing a parallel between the attack on Paul Pelosi in his home, which also happened uh, in this past week. He's the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Also, uh, the violence of the January 6th insurrection talked about that as well, condemning the rise in violence. He was um, actually kind of hinting that perhaps this could be part of Donald Trump's big lie of a stolen election, and that's what's whipping folks up.
6: can't pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's an alarming rise in the number of our people in this country Condoning political violence.
4: Now, is there any indication, Jordan, that um, this is mobilizing Democrats to come out and vote, or maybe changing hearts and minds of folks on the other side?
10: Changing hearts and minds on the other side, I, I highly doubt. Um, yeah, this play seems to be uh, something to you know, get the Democratic base going, because of course, there—that's front of mind for them. And look, you know, th- these are really important issues. Uh, you know, democracy, you know, the election denial. Uh, the fallout from January six, you know, th- this is something that you know President, you know, probably should be talking about in, in the run up to the election, given the kind of candidates that are running on the other side. But, um, you know, as a matter of you know political expediency and tactical uh, decision making ahead of the midterms, I'm not sure this is moving voters in Democrats' favor ahead of the midterms. You know, I, the cost of living, like we we're just talking about, the economy; those are things that are front of mind, and that's really. Imperative for Biden to address in the in the closing days here.
4: I want to talk to you about some of the big races that have been top of mind over the past well, the past several weeks really. You've got Georgia's Senate race, you've got uh, Pennsylvania, you've got Nevada. What are some of the things that you're going to be watching for in the next few days?
10: Well, especially in Nevada, you know, can you know, Cortez Masto the democratic senator there really harnessed the the hispanic vote. I mean that's been the key turnout engine for democrats and you know that used to be a purple state and they've now you know captured basically all the statewide offices there but uh since the pandemic those you know a lot of those people work in the casinos they had a really tough time during the pandemic the, the inflation is really hitting nevada hard so uh, you know all all these economic issues we're talking about that that re- you know if you look at Nevada, I would say that's kind of the ground zero for mm-hmm. that. But in in Georgia, you know, it's you you have these other candidates like Herschel Walker who've really been you know poor candidates, and but
4: but can, got can, traction. Can he they, has traction. They have
10: traction because of the environment, and the the environment's so bad for Democrats. And when so, you say
4: the environment, you mean the tone, the, the... yeah, the
10: political environment. You know, people are angry and upset with the, with the economy, and they want to take it out on Democrats. So is that going to be enough to propel a, a candidate who has flaws like Herschel Walker to victory? And so that's what I'll be looking for in, in you know Georgia and also in Arizona.
4: And in Pennsylvania, things have really tightened up between Mehmet Oz and Fetterman.
10: That's right. And so y- you look at uh, you look at what Joe Biden's going right He's avoided a lot of those states we were just talking about with the key races but his advisors believe that he resonates in Pennsylvania. So will Joe Biden uh, have t- coattails here? Can he help really propel Fetterman who's really struggled since having that stroke and fallen behind or I guess had his lead cut uh, w- w- over odds like can he could Joe Biden propel at least one vulnerable Democrat to victory this year?
4: All right. We're going to watch it with you. Jordan Fabian covering the White House for Bloomberg News. As always, Jordan, thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. That's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune into Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and sound on with Joe Matthew weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time here on Bloomberg Radio. And we will bring you live election coverage on Bloomberg Radio and television Tuesday night. That starts at 8 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. John.
1: Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thanks, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.